Late in 2022, the U.S. President Joe Biden signed an omnibus spending bill that included within it the Protecting and Transforming Cyber Health Care Act of 2022, better known as the Patch Act. What this act does, among other things, is codify into law basic cybersecurity necessary throughout the lifetime of a medical device. You would think that would be a given, but it hasn't been the case. In the United States, we have had the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, better known as HIPAA, since 1996. It doesn't really cover tech. It allows you to protect and move your health information from one insurance carrier to another. Since the U.S. doesn't have a national health care plan, HIPAA was designed so that patients could receive continuing care as they change plans, change doctors, even employers. It did not, however, define the security of the medical devices being used for this. The tech then came in another form of legislation, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health, or HITECH Act of 2009. It was designed for the technology that would digitize health records in the U.S. to help comply with HIPAA. It began to define some of the criteria that electronic medical records and other devices would use before receiving FDA approval. Unfortunately, like HIPAA before it, high-tech was also inadequate and also misunderstood within the health delivery organizations. It really didn't extend beyond, say, the accounting systems. What about medical devices themselves? In general, within healthcare, there's been a lot of confusion around updating medical devices to the latest and greatest software version, even if a vulnerability has been identified. After all, once a device has been certified for use by the FDA, it was assumed that that certification would not allow it to be updated, ever. Think about it. When you have a million-dollar MRI sitting in the next room, you don't want to change anything lest it stop working. That thinking is clearly wrong. Yet that is why you still see devices operating with Windows 7 in some health delivery organizations even today. And that's not good. Microsoft it stopped supporting Windows 7 back in April 2013. That means any new vulnerabilities to be found within Windows 7, they've not been patched. And that means that there are vulnerable medical devices out there in the world all because of a misunderstanding. Starting October 1st, 2023, new medical devices offered for FDA certification in the United States will need to conform to new practices, including having the liability for software within the device. And that timing, well, it couldn't be better. At the end of 2022, over the holiday season, ransomware struck a pediatric center at the heart of Toronto, Canada crippling their communication systems. I mean, come on, who targets a hospital full of kids over Christmas? And the Hospital for Sick Children says it's dealing with a cybersecurity incident that's affecting several network systems, including some of their phone lines. Sick Kids says a system failure called the Code Gray went into effect on Sunday night, prompting the activation of the Incident Command Center. The hospital says patient care is unaffected and there's no evidence that personal or health information has been impacted. Chalk 24 is above the hospital for us this morning, giving us that bird's eye view. Officials say third-party exports have now been called in to help resolve the situation. 
But here, the ransomware operators saw the news and quickly reversed themselves, saying that some franchisee had attacked the hospital in violation of the ransomware gang's terms. Apparently, even the bad actors have some ethics. Our sick kids hospitals recovering from a second cybersecurity incident in recent weeks. This after being offered a solution to its problem from the very people that carry out these kind of attacks. Unfortunately, that truce no longer holds. Ransomware against hospitals and health delivery organizations is again on the rise. And my next guest, he's going to talk about all of that. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing the rise in attacks against the health delivery organizations and medical devices themselves, and what IT departments can do to defend themselves. Perhaps we don't think of healthcare as having a lot of cybersecurity issues, and perhaps they don't. But in recent years, we've seen a rise of ransomware, and it's targeted the health delivery organizations that are out there. Why? There's just no escaping ransomware. My name is Carl Sigler, and I'm a senior security research manager at Trustwave Spider Labs. Trustwave is a cybersecurity company. Carl works for one of its divisions. Trustwave Spider Labs is a pure play security uh, services organization. Um, we primarily provide managed services to customers who maybe don't have the uh, resources in-house to run their own IT team or security team, or maybe they want to uh, enhance what they currently have. Uh, so we mainly do managed security services. Uh, my side of the house on Spider Labs is uh, pure research, following trends, monitoring the underground. Um, we handle the responsible disclosure uh, process here. So when our researchers find vulnerabilities, it's my team that reports them to the vendors and make sure there's a patch in place. Um, so I'm on the research side of the house and that research into trends, emerging threats, et cetera, go directly into our managed services team. Carl and his team have been working on a new report. This one focused on healthcare. We've been getting requests from our customers uh, for something that is uh, more specific. Um, Pre-pandemic, um, it's, it's a dividing line these days. We had um, a global security report that was released yearly, uh, and it would basically package up the uh, previous year's trends. Uh, a lot of security organizations do this. Um, it's, it's still a common practice. Uh, we found it really had just diminishing returns uh, based on the investment of time that we put into it uh, and the value that we think it provided uh, our customers and the community in general just really wasn't worth it. We wanted to do something that was a little bit, little bit more fine-tuned, more agile, and more specific than those general broad brush reports. Um, so we've been focusing on quarterly threat reports instead of yearly threat reports. And we've been focusing on very specific topics, um, starting with this healthcare report and then moving forward, we're gonna be doing a lot of um, industry vertical reports, things that are specific to what we've seen for specific industries that we work with um, as customers. And this, this one coming out is the healthcare one. Ransomware attacking hospitals? That's not new. It goes back to WannaCry, which seemed more like an accident, yet nonetheless, it did cripple the healthcare system in the United Kingdom. Here's the BBC News interviewing then Home Secretary Amber Rudd. 
Ed. Uh, we're working very hard to make sure that we help the NHS put their systems back in order. And so far, we've had reassurance from them that no patient data has been compromised. The National Cyber Security Centre is working with them to end the disruption, to contain it, and to make sure that we learn lessons from it. Can you give us the, the figures, as you understand them at this stage, about how many hospitals, how many trusts are affected? Well, we understand that 45 have been affected um, out of several hundred, and most of them are being very cautious about this. Some of them are making changes, some of them aren't. Some of them are managing to carry on with their uh, daily work despite these difficulties. But can I also just point out that this, this particular attack, this cyber attack, hasn't been particularly focused on the NHS. It's been a worldwide attack. It's affected 100 countries, different organisations, but it's just in the UK that it's been particularly impacted on our NHS. Since WannaCry, however, we've seen healthcare being targeted once again. I'm wondering what research Carl has to support that. Probably during the pandemic, we were definitely looking for a lot of uptick in trends, right? We really expected to see a lot of um, compromises, a lot of threat actors acting in the healthcare space. And that actually wasn't quite true. Uh, we actually saw a lot of ransomware groups that uh, when they discovered that they had um, attacked or one of their affiliates had attacked a, a healthcare organization or a hospital. Um, a lot of times they're were, they were banned from the affiliation, uh, ransomware keys were provided in some cases. Um, and uh, that's changed quite a bit. Uh, now they are actively pursuing healthcare organizations uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but we've seen that change dramatically. I, I, again, like probably about two years ago, these organizations were handing over keys to ransomware um, that's just this past year, um, a group of ransomware uh, ransomware group uh, threatened to uh, release the pictures of um, breast cancer patients that they had hacked from a healthcare organization, uh, just to up the the stakes, right? Up the um, the overall stakes that that healthcare agency or organization uh, it was facing. Um, and we're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, PHI uh, rather than PII, so personal healthcare information. Um, it, it's it's a commodity these days, um, and a lot of people are, are wanting that in the underground uh, for, again, a variety of different reasons. So with ransomware, it's like it can be a two-pronged attack, where the first one is it denies the data by encrypting it, and the second one, it exfiltrates and then tries to extort you with the release of that information. That's, that's exactly correct. And uh, they've only added that second sort of um, stage relatively recently. Uh, it used to be that just locking down your uh, primary information, um, your most valuable databases, your, your customer databases, your employee databases, uh, that would be enough to compel organizations to pay the ransom. Um, these days, organizations are getting a lot better protecting themselves against ransomware, uh, you know, good backups, uh, segmented backups, so you can restore data if it does get encrypted. Um, and uh, they started adding that second stage just to, you know, hedge their bets and make sure that uh, even if um, the ransomware itself wasn't compelling enough, the idea that they've exfiltrated important information that is going to ruin your reputation and possibly open you up to uh, legal um, concerns, um, that will compel organizations into paying the ransom. So that two-pronged approach, it's been profitable for these threat actors. So uh, I expect to see more of it in the coming years. So the report states that roughly 24% of all ransomware in 2022 was healthcare related. I'm surprised since we've gone from a period in COVID where ransomware operators were not attacking healthcare and almost apologizing when it did happen 
to now just give me the money. Yeah, um, nobody said that uh, you know threat actors had uh, a lot of morals or, or ethics, um, and uh, maybe that was just a a little good-hearted move for six or seven months there, um, and, and now they're they're back at the money. They're back at the money game. Um, it's it's unfortunate, but I, I think we'll see an increasing trend that way. I think the only thing that really helps prevent that are um, organizations that have good best practices in place, uh, proper segmentation, um, and, and access controls that will prevent exfiltration of data, or at least you'll get audited, you'll have auditing in place and be notified uh, when confidential data is being exfiltrated. So um, just being able to stop the exfiltration process may be able to stop that second stage uh, of these attacks. Um, but again, it's, it's difficult. And these organizations tend to be very, very large. And what we used to consider just the hard perimeter is now very desperate or disparate and uh, across a lot of different geographies and homes and you name it, it's all over the place. So I've had these conversations with a few people in security. I'm wondering where Carl is on hospitals being a flat organization, or are they still segmented? Oh, they are heavily segmented, uh, absolutely. Um, just internally for their organization, um, they're segmented where they probably shouldn't be. They have individual silos of, um, of teams that don't necessarily communicate properly with each other. Uh, and then not properly siloed or segmented when they should be. Uh, for instance, um, IT often gets put in charge of security as well. Uh, and, and that's never a good idea. Um, the, the IT teams and the security teams should be separate because they have different goals. Um, you know, your IT admins, they want to make sure that availability is their primary concern. They want to make sure the network's available. They want to make sure your services are available. Uh, your email is available when you log in in the morning. Security professionals have a different view of things. And when you mix those two jobs up, uh, you end up with IT people that will delay security concerns because it may affect the availability of the services they're currently offering. You end up with a conflict there. Uh, and then in other situations, you have uh, people that are in charge of, say, uh, hardware devices on the network, um, maybe monitoring devices, medical devices, et cetera. Um, and that may be an entirely different team than the team that manages the network switches and the servers and the internal infrastructure. Uh, and if those two teams don't talk to each other and especially um, work in parallel to prioritize their security concerns, there's going to be chinks in the arm. If they are segmented, I'm wondering if, if Carl had any information on which parts of the health delivery organization were targeted more than others. Um, <clears throat> That's hard to say. I'm not sure that I think once they start to target a healthcare organization, either directly, you know, they're, they're doing the recon, they decided that this healthcare campus is exactly what they want. Um, at, at that point, uh, once they decided on the targets, I think they become much more opportunistic. Uh, they look for the holes that are going to be the biggest gaps um, in the network, the ways that they're going to be able to get that foothold, um, get into the network. Um, and then from there, they'll start probing around for valuable data. Um, they are always after PHI. So they're going to be looking for database systems. They're going to be looking for uh, medical imaging systems. Um, and uh, whatever uh, access they have for that, they'll try to probably exfiltrate and or encrypt the data uh, at that point in time. So I think that um, the, the initial target right, doesn't necessarily specify what the compromise is going to be. The compromise is almost always going to be opportunistic. 
often typically through uh, phishing or spear phishing attacks. Um, and then once they get that foothold, they're going to start to specifically explore and probe the network. And again, they're looking for those, those big databases um, and then anything internal to controlling the network so they can maintain persistence, right? So Active Directory systems, um, getting uh, network credentials for routers and the like. Um, these are all goals um, and there will be reconnaissance and attempts to exploit each of those areas and probably every single compromise, unless they have very, very specific goals in, in a case. So with these ransomware groups, are there some that are focused on health delivery organizations? That's a good question. I think we've seen some of them um, focus a little bit on healthcare specifically. Uh, I'm thinking of, I mean, Klopp was all over the place with uh, Move It. Um, but uh, they, you know, they were targeting a lot of big organizations uh, with that. Healthcare was definitely one of them. Uh, verticals. The um, other ransomware groups, it, it depends. It depends, really. Um, I think that none of them want to focus on any one specific industry directly. Um, but I think healthcare has just become so such a tantalizing target because of the wealth and the value of the information there and the complexity of the networks. Uh, and when you have the complexity of those networks, you just have, you're going to find chinks in the armor. You're going to find ways in. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing a, an uptick in healthcare attacks recently. Um, you know, the the good heartedness of the, uh, the the pandemic has worn off. Uh, the realization that there's a lot of money to be had um, grabbing information there, whether it's directly from the hospital by extorting them or selling that information or both. Um, yeah, I, I don't think any one organization is specifically targeting healthcare organizations. I think all of them are realizing that it's a um, a very valuable target to hit, and if you're successful at it, the returns are going to be pretty massive. Some of these ransomware attacks are still collateral damage. There's a supply chain attack, such as MoveIt. MoveIt, I wouldn't necessarily consider a supply chain attack like SolarWinds necessarily. Um, it was a vulnerability that was discovered by Klopp, so it was more of a zero-day vulnerability uh, attack uh, that was discovered. But we still have to be concerned about all of this, right? We More than ever before, I think that every organization works with third parties, uh, with software vendors, with so many different um, participants uh, that you know things get lost in the cracks. Uh, when you have complexity, complexity is the enemy of security. Um, so in these cases, you know we have um, we have these situations where you're getting hardware devices from various companies, and even trustworthy companies are getting affected. SolarWinds is the big name in network monitoring, and and they were affected by this. Um, Move it. Honestly, I'd never even heard of Move it until the uh, zero day came out, and then I saw how many organizations were using that software. Obviously, that was going to be a big target. And uh, a lot of these small threat actors, they've discovered that um, you know they don't necessarily have to target the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. You know, if they can target the small person delivering the bananas every day, they, they still got it right. So they're going to go after the smaller actors. They're going to go through those suppliers. Um, and whether it's a, you know, some sloppy coding or, you know, some missed code that provided a vulnerability that could be discovered, or whether they're actually able to infiltrate the organization directly, as was the case with SolarWinds and distribute out at malware as an update. Um, you know, when we trust those vendors so heavily, um, we have to do the security due diligence to make sure they're doing their best to lock things down. Some things are out of our control. People trust SolarWinds. I trust SolarWinds. 
um, you know, governments trust solar winds, and um, the, the fact that they were specifically breached the way they were—that was a horrible event that is really not easy to combat or prevent from happening. Right. Um, but not all of them are that way. Um, you know, when I compare these days, healthcare is considered basically critical infrastructure, uh, and when you compare healthcare organizations to say um, utility organizations, uh, water purification plants, uh, these, these SCADA OT networks that uh, we talk about, um, hospitals are still a lot easier to break into than an electric grid organ uh, company, typically for the reason that the software that the hospitals are using are all uniform and the same across the board. They're all getting their same medical devices from the same manufacturers. They're probably getting their same, uh, core software from Microsoft. They're getting all of these, you know, it, it's not very, it, it's complex. There's a lot of moving parts there, but it's not really unique. Uh, in the case of a lot of SCADA inst installations, you're going to find a unique installation at every single plant you go to. Um, you know, there's no one, I developed this uh, compromise and it's going to work across all of these electric companies. It's almost built in tolerance that way that I just don't see in hospital organizations. Uh, typically with hospital organizations, the, the complexity and the uniqueness is really just chaos and uh, insecurity and attacks thrive in chaos. So we touched a little bit on hardware. A lot of health delivery organizations share the same pieces of hardware because it's the only medical imaging device that's available for that particular niche need. And then there's the software breach. That becomes an entry point for the bad actors to get into any organization. Carl's report called out something with the Canon Medical Imaging System and the CVE that was attached to that. That was a, a DICOM server uh, one of our researchers found a vulnerability in. Um, it was across cross-site scripting vulnerability, which is generally considered relatively minor. Uh, but it was a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the administrative console, uh, that, that web front end. Um, and if you know how to work a cross-site scripting um, vulnerability well, you can get that, uh, you can get them to do pretty much whatever you want. Um, so the fact that it was in the administrative console, and really all you have to do is compel an admin, just with a little bit of reconnaissance, go to LinkedIn, find out who they're, uh, head of, um, you know, medical imaging is, send them a custom email that uh, convinces them to open a uh, URL. That URL will automatically perform some action in the administrative uh, interface. That will typically start exfiltrating data, uh, setting up persistence in a backdoor. Um, and, um, you know, these DICOM servers tend to be publicly exposed as well. So that standard is available specifically for exchanging uh, medical imaging information, you know, MRIs, uh, you know, and the like. So, yeah, we we were focusing on DICOM a bit. Uh, we found that vulnerability. There, the Canon uh, Vitrio was really great at uh, working with us and, and patching it. Uh, something that sometimes we don't see from these vendors when we're working with them from a, uh, a responsible disclosure uh, process. Uh, but they're really good to work with, and I, I'm definitely seeing a lot more of these manufacturers taking these things seriously. You know, when we look back, um, God, probably like maybe 2015, 2016. Uh, there were all those vulnerabilities in um, um, infusion pumps, uh, insulin pumps, IV pumps, and the like. In 2011, I was at Black Hat when Jay Radcliffe presented his research on his own insulin pump. I have a five-year-old son. He comes up to me and he says, 
what you working on, Dad? I said, well, I'm working on a, a presentation uh, about my little medical device, because he knows that I have an insulin pump, and it gives me medicine all the time. And I said, I want to show that bad people can't do things to Dad uh, with that medical device. And he goes, you mean bad people like Dr. Doofenshmirtz? I said, well, I wouldn't too be too worried about him, but yeah. So then my son went on and on about creating this innator, and he was going to come after me, and he was going to render me dead. And that's pretty much what we're going to talk about today, is the feasibility of this. And uh, at the end, I'm going to be doing a demonstration that shows that I can turn off insulin pumps remotely, or a particular insulin pump remotely. What Jay and other researchers, such as Barnaby Jack, found was that insulin pumps were basically wide open to attack, mostly through internet connectivity. Shortly before his death, Barnaby had announced that he was able to mess with somebody's insulin pump from across the room. Here's Barnaby on Bloomberg TV. I picked insulin pumps uh, mostly just because how of uh, the ease of actually acquiring them. Um, we're planning on looking at pacemakers and various other implantable devices, but unfortunately it's, uh, it's, it's a little tough to just be able to pick up a pacemaker on the street. So Barnaby, take me through how this all works. Okay, so there's actually a vulnerability in these devices. Uh, typically to be able to communicate with them, you'd no need to know the serial number. I have a vulnerability which will let me acquire the serial number from any of these insulin pumps within a 100-meter range. Whoa, 800 meters? That's far. Someone in a crowd of people could have their pump jacked, and they would have no idea who is responsible. Here, the design was for convenience, accessibility to monitor the pumps over the Internet, and not necessarily the underlying security or authentication of that communication. Those systems just had unauthenticated telnet open to them. They were exchanging data with unauthenticated uh, FTP. You know, that's just clear text data going across the wire. Um, but when that was reported back, was, that was reported up to them, going on eight years now, uh, they declined that it was a vulnerability. They said that, uh, you know, best, basic best practices would avoid all of this uh, and didn't give the researchers even access to the back end to uh, replicate or verify the, uh, the, the situation. These days, these organizations are really buckling down. I think with uh, a lot of um, compliance laws, um, you know, the, the fact that we have HIPAA, the fact that we have a lot of these healthcare compliance laws have forced these organizations to sort of buckle down um, because these hospitals aren't going to be held uh, aren't going to be held accountable. They're not going to be holding the bill at the end if it was some harbor manufacturer that caused a compromise. They're going to let that liability trickle right downhill. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of these vendors start to take the situation a lot more seriously. Um, and uh, we're seeing better response from them overall. Uh, I think that the industry as a whole is maturing quite a bit, um, but still have a long way to go. So health delivery organizations, they're maturing, but there's still a lot to patch. And that's where the Patch Act comes in, which was passed at the end of the year in the United States and is now conferring upon the manufacturer the liability and responsibility for updating the equipment and keeping its software up to date, even after what they would consider to be end of life. These are the types of tricks that some vendors play. You know, they'll uh, say, I'm not going to patch it. It's just end of life. We don't, we don't support that version anymore. Um, there are a lot of devices that were still using Windows XP as the base operating system, even after Microsoft was no longer uh, providing patches for Windows XP and all of the vulnerabilities that have been discovered in Windows platforms since then. Um, so yeah, a lot of these, uh, you know, 
these new regulations and laws that are coming out are in specific response to how vendors sometimes play these games to avoid avoid the responsibility of patching their their things. And it's a hard job on that side as well. I mean, these um, you know infusion pumps, uh, these IV pumps that may be vulnerable. They're not generally directly connected to the internet. It's not like your home router where, you know, when um, Netgear has a new update, it just pushes it down to all of the routers and you're just patched whether you know it or not. There's no automatic patching of this. I'm wondering if Carl has seen a shift in how people look at healthcare within the security space. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, it, it was rare back in the day that you would see um, any of these hospitals connected up to the internet at all. Um, and then they might have one or two terminals where, you know, it would be good if we could do a little bit of research, maybe a, a Google search. Um, and then that just went to, well, you know, I, I'll just have my phone out then and access the Internet that way. And it's still connected to the Wi-Fi. Um, and uh, then you have uh, work from home. You have a lot of people, maybe administration staff that is going to be working from home. They're going to have to have Internet access um, to, to continue to do that work. And they're going to have to connect up to systems in the hospital network over the Internet. Um, and then, you know, the people that are pushing those new policies out, maybe they don't realize that you should be having uh, VPNs as well. Uh, just the just getting access alone was a hard enough problem. Trying to teach all of your users how to use VPNs. Oh, and then you want to use two-factor authentication with that as well. Um, I mean, the problems can sometimes seem insurmountable. And um, that's that's where we end up with these security holes. So uh, the... the Probably the past decade, um, hospitals have been getting online and in more ways, um, more and more often to the point where, you know, they've got dozens of connections in and out um, and all kinds of uh, avenues of getting in and out, whether it's just with a portable device, whether it's with direct access, whether it's with a misconfigured firewall where some systems were left on the outside of it, um, all kinds of things that can occur. The other problem is some of these medical devices, well, they're connecting to the Internet. So you could fire up Shodan and you could take a look at how many people are using a, a Siemens device, for example. You know, it's all exposed. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of these um, uh, medical devices are specifically directly connected to the Internet uh, for remote monitoring and remote care. Um, you know, if, if you're having uh, an issue, do you really want to be, you know, waiting for your doctor to move from some other hospital to come to you? The, the ease and the efficiency of technology um makes things a lot easier. Uh, it, it just does. And that can have an overall health benefit in general. Mm. Um, that said, um, if, if we are getting this efficiency and we're getting this um, ease and we're getting this additional health benefit without working on the security element there, um, we're not doing anybody a service. Um, you know, we're, we're going to, uh, we're, we're putting people at risk at that point. Um, you know, we, we've seen it with pacemakers, right? Uh, so there's some pacemakers where just by accessing the back end uh, administrative system, um, you could actually modify how those pacemakers are working. And that back end system was how doctors monitor their patients' pacemakers. A good thing. Um, but again, the, we're, we're seeing these new features being pushed out, uh, remote monitoring and the like, without necessarily the important security controls being put in place. Code signing, encryption in place, encryption in transit, all the things that we talked about. So we've talked about the devices. What about the software? What can a health delivery organization do? It 
almost seems insurmountable given all the moving parts and pieces that are making up the problem. It's a very difficult problem, which is why, you know, a lot of generic advice is just that generic. And a lot of people will just say, oh, yeah, okay, well, it doesn't, can't really apply to us. Um, yeah, you have to start someplace, right? I think that um, probably just deciding that uh, security is an issue or maybe finding the security board that you've already set up a couple of years ago because you decided security was an issue. Uh, make sure that, that that program, that security program is healthy, that it's being attended to, that people are participating in it and that it has plans. Um, you know, all the basic best practices still stand. Find out what your inventory is, what are on your networks. After that, you can decide what of that inventory is most valuable to you and start working at risk reduction from the top down, from the most valued systems to the lowest systems. But if you don't know what your inventory is on your network, you don't know what devices are there, uh, how many infusion pumps you have, how many pacemakers connected to your administrative console, you don't even know where to start. So I always recommend uh, that organizations start with a good process for figuring out what your current inventory is and a process that's formalized to keep ongoing um, uh, thumb on what the inventory continues to be because networks are dynamic, they're never still. Uh, from there, you can pretty much start to um, carve what your threat posture looks like. Uh, once you know what you have, what data you are storing, uh, what's most valuable to you, what may be most valuable for attackers targeting you, um, then you can start putting security controls in place. So I asked Carl if he thought there might be a shortage of security professionals in health delivery organizations. Definitely, definitely. Um, and, and I think there's a shortage of security people everywhere. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of um, uh, a, a younger generation coming up, and I love to see what these kids are doing. Uh, I call them kids. They're in their freaking 20s now. Um, but, uh, you know, they're doing some really great stuff. But I think in general, security at any organization is such a difficult and unique problem at every organization um, that even when people do get uh, talented security people in the organization, they have a hard time retaining them. They have a hard time keeping them because the resources aren't invested. It's like, hey, we hired this amazing security person. They're they're going to be doing great. You know, she's got 20 years in the industry and she's going to lock everything down. You know, the, the joke back in the day was that uh, what is a security team of one? It's a scapegoat. Um, so they're, they're hiring this, this person. There's the they're providing like, look, look at how serious we're taking security now. But then that person gets no resources, gets no budget, gets no team to work with, gets no direct contact with board or administrators, um, uh, or even you know how the business model is set up for that specific organization. So I think there is a, a definitely a talent gap. Uh, we definitely need a lot more people in the security industry. Uh, but I think there are a lot of really great security people out there um, that are just getting burned out because um, they just aren't being listened to. You know, I'm still giving a lot of the same advice that I was giving in the 90s. And, um, and we'll probably be giving that same advice in another 10 years out. Carl mentioned auditing. And I know that's kind of intimidating, particularly, as I just said, there's a diversity of what health delivery organizations have to deal with. It's not as simple as running MMAP, for example. No, it requires more nuance than that. Oh, yeah, it's it's very difficult. If we could just run NMAP and just dump the ex, uh, the, the output to a CSV, that'd be great. But um, no, I mean, there's all kinds of situations where, you know, it, 
we see things where systems are um, set up as just IPv6. They don't even have an IPv4 address. So they sort of fall through the cracks if you're not looking for IPv6. Uh, heck, we ran into one network that still had a um, Novell network running IPX with a IP to IPX bridge um, for some legacy finance system that they had. Uh, so finding these systems can be very difficult. You have to talk to people. You can't just run an automatic scan. Um, it can be extremely difficult to get that, which is why a lot of people don't maintain a, a proper inventory. Um, but once you figure out how to do it for your organization, um, write it in stone and keep it up because um, starting over from scratch again is just, it's a no-win situation. And sometimes, just to make it a winnable position, some audits begin to exclude things that shouldn't be excluded. Um, so the hospitals actually have to take the proactive measure of figuring out what they have. Inventory itself is a hard issue. Figuring out what level it's at, what patches are available, and keeping that up to date, ongoing, consistently. Um, and a lot of them are just informal processes kept on Excel spreadsheets. It, it gets lost when you have that type of situation. I, I think um, I might have been Juniper recently did a um, uh a scan of about uh, 200,000 um, medical devices uh, as part of some research that they were doing uh, and discovered that 75% of them did not have patches installed that were already available. Um, so despite the fact that this, the patches were available, um, people weren't, weren't applying them. You know, we see that regularly in uh, networks. Uh, but in when you're talking about medical devices and when you're talking about healthcare networks, there's so much, th so many things that people don't think about. You know, um, they're changing bursts because there are compliance laws that they have to uh, work with. You know, they can't take the chance of blue screening a system uh, because a patch was faulty. Uh, so they have to test those patches out first before they can put it on a system because there's there's lives at stake here. Um, so they will not make any changes unless they absolutely have to. Unfortunately, that posture also introduces a lot of risk and, and security issues as well. So it's, it's a hard thing, um, but it's, you know, it, it's something that we really have to take seriously because as, as bad as patching is with just physical systems where we can do, do a network scan with these medical devices, often they're even excluded from, from these scans to find out what's out there. So now I'm curious. Carl just said IPv6, and I'm still thinking that it's in the security by obscurity column. I mean, how many people do you know are running on IPv6? Apparently, though, it's gone more mainstream. Pretty much everything gets an IPv6 address, whether you like it or not. Um, and uh, a lot of, um, you know, we see situations. In fact, there's a blog post I, I can send you if you're interested. Um, we actually talked about this uh, from our red team pen test side because uh, they see this all the time. Um, and, and we find that um, in trying to lock down a network, um, administrators say, oh, you know, this system doesn't even need to be connected to the network. So they'll just remove the IP address. They only remove the IPv4 address. Um, and the IPv6 is still there. So we start to see these lone IPv6 addresses. And when we investigate the system, the uh, network owner's like, that system isn't even on the network. What are you talking about? Um, everything has an IPv6 address. It's just unfortunate that a lot of us don't realize that um, because we, we, really, we really should. It definitely opens up holes. So attackers, they're looking at IPv6. Whether you've implemented it or not, they're targeting your systems. You better believe it. Absolutely. Um, they they know about those holes. They know about those gaps. And um, if they see anything a little bit unique, um, one off IPv6 is definitely better than uh, uh, 8,000 or 800 uh, IPv4s. Um, something interesting is going on there. That's that's definite red flag. 
A lot of this information is not healthcare specific. Obviously, your uh, hospitality industry isn't going to have any infusion pumps, hopefully. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the general uh, attack flow, the general gist and how uh, these uh, threat actors operate, uh, I think is pretty much across industries. So I think there's a lot of good information in here in general. And hopefully it's a, um, you know, a call to action to um, just take a look at your security uh, organization. Make sure that it's working the way it should be. Have a meeting and talk and uh, make sure that people are, are paying attention to it. I'd like to thank Carl Siegler for coming on and talking about ransomware against health delivery organizations and about hacking healthcare devices themselves. This is an important topic and one that doesn't always get mentioned in the security community. And yet, we need healthcare. It's a critical infrastructure. So paying more attention and doing more research, all of this is good. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure, makers of Mayhem Security, an application software testing solution for applications and APIs. Learn more about Mayhem at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi. <laughs>